can open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark 2, we're going to look at the same passage we did last week, um, but look at some other truths here. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we read, Then he, meaning Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. Now, you, of course, you know Levi is Matthew, right? The son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now you notice this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, is repeated over and over and over, right? That's that's a clue, right? That's a clue to what's going on. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, and some versions say to repentance, or as it says in Luke, I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Uh, we're going to look at three things today. Fasting, excuse me, feasting, fasting, and forms. You like that? Three Fs. Feasting, fasting, and forms. First thing we, we see in this text is that Levi, after he was called, had a feast. He had a dinner. Now Jesus, in calling Levi, of course, upset the uh, Pharisaical traditions because Levi was a tax collector, and according to many of the Jews, he was the lowest sort of sinner because not only was he collecting taxes, you know, working for the IRS, if you will, but he was a Jew working for the Roman government. So he was a traitor. And so, um, the Mark's trying to bring this out when he uses this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, repeatedly in the text, and says there were many, 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 many. Jesus is surrounded by the lowlife, as we say. Jesus calls Matthew. Um, and as you look at Jesus when he called his disciples, there's nothing notable about his disciples. Nothing. Um, as far as we know, they are fairly typical people. And so Jesus not only uh, upset social conventions by calling a sinner, but he, he went contrary to what we think of as worldly wisdom. Because if I was starting a movement, I would look for the best, the brightest, the sharpest, the most successful, right? So Jesus is starting a movement that's going to change the world. And who does he pick? Tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because, well, the word tells us that God doesn't choose the wise, 
right? He doesn't choose the, the mighty. He chooses the foolish and he chooses the weak. Why? That he might receive all of the glory. The fact that these men were the, were the foundation stones of a movement that literally transformed and is transforming the world is purely miraculous. And it must be attributed to the power and might of God because it certainly cannot be attributed to them. But that's God's way. The Lord chooses the weak. He chooses the foolish. He chooses those that we, according to worldly wisdom, would not choose. And guess what? That's why he chose you. That's why he chose you. So, another observation on this feast is... You see, if you read the Gospels attentively, you see there's a lot of talk about feasting and banquets and, and food. And Jesus uses this in many of his parables. He tells stories of the king or the master invited people for a feast. Because in the Middle East, even today, but especially then, hospitality was a very important virtue. Very important virtue. And... It was important not only to be hospitable, but it was important to be known as being hospitable. In other words, you wanted to have a reputation for knowing how to throw a really good party. And so, in those days, they had, they had, uh, they had a phrase, and if you wanted to be a man known around town, you wanted to be known as a man of ashes. A man of ashes. That means... You would throw such a large party that after the party there would be a huge pile of ashes outside of your home. Because you cooked so much food. And you had so many guests. It would kind of be like going to the curb today and there would be like 50 boxes from Pizza Hut. (laughs) You threw a big party, right? Some of you have been to graduation parties this weekend, I'm sure. Right? The bigger the party, the better. So Matthew throws a big feast, and why did he do this? Well, he was celebrating. Matthew was celebrating that Jesus had called him to be a disciple. And um, it's very likely that Matthew or Levi already knew Jesus, at least knew of him, because uh, they were in Capernaum, where Jesus did many, many mighty works. And it's probable that Matthew was aware of Jesus' reputation and may have even seen him do many of these things. Maybe they'd actually conversed at one point. We don't know. But um, Matthew, upon receiving the call, responded immediately and then threw a party for Jesus. He was celebrating the fact that he was a disciple. Shouldn't we celebrate Ought we not to celebrate that God has called us? That of all the the millions and billions of people in the world, many of whom do not know Christ, the Lord has called us. And so we ought to be feasting, if you will, in our Christian life, and we ought to be celebrating, not only in a spiritual sense, but in a literal sense. We ought to be feasting, and the center of the feast ought to be Jesus. The fact that he has called us and that Jesus is now in our home. Jesus is now in my home and I can have a party and Jesus is there. And I think when Matthew held this feast to celebrate, he was not only celebrating his own call, but he was, he was, he was uh, using this occasion 
to share his call with others. So it wasn't just him and Jesus. It was him and Jesus and many tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he invited many of his friends to come and to celebrate with him, many of whom maybe had never met Jesus. So here's an opportunity. So Matthew used his celebration of being called as a disciple to share Jesus with others. There's a lesson there for us. Amen. Not only ought we to be rejoicing and celebrating in our discipleship, but we also ought to be inviting others to come and to get to know the one who has called us. And we can imitate Levi literally. We can literally invite people into our home that don't know the Lord. Invite them over for dinner. Invite them over for lunch. Invite the sinners into your home. And if Christ is in your home, then they will have an opportunity to meet Jesus Christ at your table. Very simple strategy for evangelism. Amen? But very biblical. Secondly, let's talk about the fasting here. So, Jesus and Levi and the sinners are having a party. The Pharisees, are the disciples of the Pharisees, and John's disciples, they're fasting. So, you, you, you get the picture, right? They're hungry. You know when you fast, you get a little crabby, right? So, they're hungry, they're crabby. These people are having a party. They're salivating at the food. So, like, hey, what are you guys doing having fun when we're fasting? So this, this is what raises their, their ire, if you will, as, as well as the fact that Jesus is breaking the social conventions by hanging out with the disreputable people. So the Pharisees say, how come we fast, John's disciples fast, but you're not fasting? <clears throat> now, the first thing that we need to understand about the Pharisees is that they fasted twice a week on a regular basis, And they even fasted in addition to that on special occasions. Look at Luke 18, if you will. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Jesus is actually teaching on prayer here. And he compares the right attitude and the wrong uh, attitude in prayer. In in Luke 18, verse 9, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, here we go. Pharisee, tax collector, right? That's exactly the the persons we have in in the passage in Mark. Same setup. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Well, we know we got a problem. I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even as this tax collector. So the guy's praying, supposedly praying to God, but it's striking that Jesus said that he prayed with himself. And as he's praying, instead of looking at God, what is he doing? He's looking at the guy over there. And not only looking at the guy over there, he's looking down on the guy over there. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So, he goes to God and begins to give God a list of his meritorious works and how righteous he is and how good he is and expresses his condemnation of those that were sinners. This he does in prayer. 
Verse 13, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisees, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't necessarily that they fasted, or they tithed, or they did various things. Many of those things are actually good. Many of those things ought to be done. But what was the problem then? What we see from this text and many others was that the problem with the Pharisees was not the practice of fasting. Rather, it was the spirit in which they fasted. Are you hearing me? A.B. Bruce, the the, uh, commentator, said, The Pharisees, while very religious, were also very inhuman, full of pride, prejudice, harshness, and hatred. This character was in God's sight far more detestable than that of those who were addicted to the coarse vices of the multitude. In other words, those that the Pharisees called sinners. Of all the forms of religious pride exhibited in the world, Christian pride is the worst. Why? Because as Christians, we profess to be saved by grace. And do we understand what this means? How easily do we forget that grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved kindness? Undeserved. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which you know very well, but let me point something out to you. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul is saying that our salvation is all of grace. All of grace. By nature, we're children of wrath, but God's rich in mercy because His great love with with which He loved us. He, he, he He makes us alive in Christ. He raises us up in Christ. He makes us sit with Christ. And He does this so we can shower His kindness on us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Now listen, 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 lest anyone should boast. What was the Pharisee doing? He was boasting. We are saved by grace completely. This means that there is no pride in ourselves for our salvation. None whatsoever. It is all of God, it is all of grace, it is all of Jesus, and it is none of us. For by grace you have been saved, so that no one can boast. We are not better than the sinner who is unsaved because we are saved. We are saved because Jesus has called us. Jesus has opened our eyes. Jesus has saved us. We are not better than the sinners because we are saved. It does not have anything to do with my merit, my goodness, my wisdom, my understanding. It is everything that I have, everything that we as Christians have is a gift of God given to us through His grace. The the great reformation that happened in the West was about this very issue. Is our salvation of God alone 
or is it of God and us? And Rome said it was God and us, and the Reformers said it was all of God. And thus, the, the solas of the Reformation, the soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, the solus Christus, salvation by Christ alone, sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. This means that everything that we have comes from God through Christ and it is not based on anything we have done or will do. Amen. Amen. That is grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. Unearned. Hence, there is no ground for boasting. There is no ground for pride. There is no basis upon which we can step above the sinner and look down upon him. And yet, you and I both know that at times we do that. And it's wrong. Yes, you may be better than the sinner. But if you're better, it's because you have a better Savior. It's because God, through His grace, has changed you. And what we need to understand is that once we let pride infect our Christianity, we have poisoned everything about it. It it, it poisons my good, if you will. Because it is utterly displeasing to God that, that, that if anyone should be proud, it should be those who profess to be saved by grace and grace alone. That was the the problem with the Pharisees, you see. One of the problems is that in their religious practices, their practices became infected with this, this spiritual pride in which they looked down on others who didn't conform to their traditions. And I'm so thankful that we have the gospel records. Because in the gospel, we not only see Christ as an image of uh, how we ought to be, but we see the Pharisees as a picture of how we ought not to be. And they're a standing warning to us. And we need to watch them and see what they do, and then not do as they do. Now Jesus says here about fasting, that um, because the bridegroom was with them, it wasn't the the time to fast. What he's saying is, um, we're having a celebration. Today we we call it a, a wedding reception. That's the analogy. We're having a wedding reception. You, I don't know about you, but you don't go to a wedding reception to fast, right? No, you go to party. So you're, you're going to go to the wedding reception and have a good time. That's the point. You're going to eat. You're going to drink. You're going to get on the dance floor. Some of you old fuddy-duddies actually get out there and dance. But I can't get you to dance at church. I don't understand that, but that's between you and God. Anyway. Um, so, you, you, in other words... The fasting at a wedding reception doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. So Jesus says, the bridegroom is here, and so we're having a wedding reception, we're having a party, we're feasting, we're celebrating. So so fasting isn't appropriate at this time. There is an appropriate time, he says, for fasting, but it's not now. Now, um, the Jesus says the time will come here in Mark, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then his disciples will fast. Now, some think that Jesus is saying here that when he ascends into heaven and is taken away, that that's the time for for his disciples to fast. Um, 
Others think, and I think this is actually more correct, I think that the time of Jesus being taken away is not now. It was the time between his death and his ascension is when he was taken away. Or should I say his death and Pentecost? Because on Pentecost, Jesus returned. He returned in the person of his Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost, Jesus fulfilled the promise that he gave us in Matthew 28, where after giving us the great commission to go and to preach the gospel to all the nations, he then says, Lo, I am with you always. I'm not gone. I am not gone. I'm here. So Jesus, on Pentecost, comes through his spirit as he, as he promised in, in the book of John when he says, it's expedient that I go away because I will send another comforter, the, the spirit of truth, right? He will come. He will come to you. And then Jesus says in the same, same text, he says, I will come to you. I'm coming back. So he comes through his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and lo, he is with us always. So Jesus says that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in their midst. And we learn in Revelation that Jesus walks amongst the candlesticks, his church. So Jesus is here today. Whether you feel him, whether you experience him, is an entirely different matter. Experiencing Jesus' presence and knowing his presence is here are two different things. Because we believe his word, and we walk by faith, and we know he is present. Now, hopefully we experience his presence. But the experience and the reality are two different things. So Jesus is with his church. He's not abandoned his church. He is with us always. So, um, we live in the age of the Spirit, if you will. After Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit was given to the church so that the church might continue this feast. That we might continue to celebrate the victory that Jesus won through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you read the book of Acts, you see this tone of victory, this tone of proclamation. Guess what? Jesus conquered death. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. So we have victory over death. We have victory over sin. We have victory over Satan. All causes for celebration. Amen? Now, does this mean Christians don't fast? No, it doesn't mean that. Because there are times in our personal life and maybe even times in the corporate life of a people when it is appropriate to fast. Um, There are times we, we fast as an expression of spiritual need. Spiritual hunger, spiritual desire. There are times when it's appropriate to fast as a evidence of repentance before God and humility before God. So there are biblical reasons for fasting even in this day and age. But the, the point that Jesus is making here, he's not teaching us about fasting. What he's saying is there's a principle here and that is that the fasting has to fit the reality. And the Pharisees got into a habit of fasting, and they did fasting as a mere matter of form. Okay? A mere matter of form. And that leads to my third point, forms. Now, Jesus tells this parable here, and this is about the cloth and the wineskins, right? 21 through 22. Let's read it again. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
or else a new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Jesus here is, is saying, I think, first and foremost, that there is a new form for a new dispensation. A new form for a new dispensation. In other words, what we have here is a prophecy on the part of Jesus of the coming new covenant. That with his arrival, his death, burial, and resurrection, that there would be an ushering in of a new thing. A new thing. Some people call it the church age. Some people call it the age of the spirit from Pentecost until the Lord returns. Call it what you may, but it was a new thing. Prophesied in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in and through Jesus. So Jesus saying a new thing requires a new form. A new reality requires a new expression. You can't put the old, excuse me, you can't put the new in the old or it will do damage to both. And so he's hinting here already in his ministry to the Pharisees, of of dramatic changes to come. That much of the the, uh, old was going to be set aside in light of the new fullness of the Spirit. But there's another lesson here too, and that is this. That forms, although they are important, forms are always secondary to faith. Forms are secondary to faith. Some people call this the law of congruity. You like that word? Like, well, I'd like it if I knew what it meant. Congruity means that things line up. They go together. They're congruous. In other words, the outer form must reflect the inner faith. Must reflect the the inner reality. And this is true. And this is why Jesus is saying, you know, you want my disciples to fast right now, but... Fasting and celebrating don't go together. The inner and the outer, those things don't line up. So it's not the right time to do this. So, the, But there's a principle here that applies not only to fasting, but it applies to all religious expressions, all forms of worship, if you will. So I think it's better to call it, though, the law of integrity rather than the law of congruity. And what do I mean? It's this, that in our worship of God... God looks to the sincerity of our worship more than the expression or the form of our worship. Can I say that again? God looks more to the sincerity of our worship than the form or the expression of our worship. Forms may vary, and they do vary. Now think about it. This morning, well, yes, this morning, in the past 24 hours, Christians all around the globe have worshipped. And they've worshipped high church and low church, right? You, you think of an Orthodox service where there's not one word of English, and it's all chanted in Greek. You think of an Episcopalian service, a Lutheran service. Then you think of a lower church, like maybe a Baptist church, or an evangelical church like our own, where very little ritual. Or you can think of, of uh, a church in Africa where they'll, they'll dance for three hours before the sermon. Pretty cool. Then three more afterwards. (laughs) And when you look at the the body of Christ worldwide, the forms and the expressions are are just multifaceted. 
Some churches are very quiet and sedate. Some are very loud and boisterous. Some like old music. Some like new music. Some like a lot of ritual. Some like very little ritual. And the forms may vary and the forms do vary. But the outward expressions, they come and go. But under the veil of the forms, God sees our heart. As we worship God, whether we do so in a liturgical church or in a low church, God is not looking at the form. He's looking at the reality that the form is supposed to express. So we can sing loudly. We can clap our hands. We can raise our arms. All appearing to rejoice in God and worship Him. And yet it can all be vacant. It can all be empty. Someone can go to a high church and sing hymns, perform rituals of various sorts, and it all looks very reverent and godly, but it can be vacant. Because the essence of worship is not the form, it's the heart. It's not the expression, it's the intention. The Pharisees got caught up in a very human problem. And you know, let me just say this about the Pharisees. As we go through Mark, I'll be saying a lot of negative things about the Pharisees. But you have to understand that the Lord has given us these these stories, histories really, because we can be just very much like them. You have to understand the Pharisees are simply a biblical picture of human nature Religious human nature. And religious people can be the most hateful people you will ever meet. And they're not just Muslims. And it's true. They can be the most arrogant, prideful, hateful, self-centered people you will ever meet. And they, and they do it in the name of God. And they justify it because of many things. But one of the th- reasons is because they have the right form. And churches have been torn apart. Because Christians argue about forms. Now, during the Reformation, I think there were some very necessary fights that had to go on. Because I believe that there's freedom in forms. Uh, and the problem then wasn't that forms varied, but the forms were being mandated by law. To me, that's a different matter. It's one thing to say a form is permissible. It's another thing to say that a form is mandated and you must observe it. And that was what they were fighting about. But having made that caveat, we, low church as many of us are, we also must be wary of confusing the form for the spirit. You hearing me? Now, here's, here's the other thing about forms and external aspects of ritual. If you are of a conservative nature, you probably like things the same way. You, 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 there's a comfort in knowing what the form will be. A lot of people, when they go to church, they actually want it written out in a program. The minister will speak, will do two hymns, the, the congregation will answer, we will pray, and they want it all written out, and there's comfort in that. I understand that. I'm not criticizing that. And so, high church or low church, every church has a liturgy, and it generally follows the pretty much the same order week after week. And people find comfort in that, especially in a world like ours, where it seems like things change daily. The world's changing so rapidly. Everything just seems to be motion. 
And so we go to church, and it's just like I was last week. Forever and ever, amen. I read a, I read a book by uh, Philip Yancey. He wrote a small book on the uh, church, Why Bother? It's a good little book, by the way. You ought to read it. Take an evening. And he talks about he was raised in a very conservative, legalistic church when he was little, and it caused him to rebel and reject church. Um, and uh, in addition to the legalism, was church was just kind of boring because it was always the same. But then he said as he got older, he, he began to find comfort in that sameness. That at least there was one thing in his life that wasn't changing rapidly. And so he could go to church and it would be the, the same. And he, that was comforting and comfortable, right? And it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unless it lulls us into a, a, a place of being a little bit too comfortable. You know what I'm saying? That because I go through the form, I'm really engaged with my heart and spirit. Or another problem is to think because I like this form that I feel some need to condemn everybody else's form. And some of you are doing that because I read your Facebooks. We don't, look, brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. We're all going to stand before Christ. And he's not going to ask you what the church down the street was doing. He's going to ask you, what were you doing every Sunday when I was calling you to myself? What were you doing every Sunday when I was speaking to you through my word? That's what he's going to ask you. We don't, we got enough stuff to take care of right here. You got enough stuff in your home. I got enough stuff in my home to take care of. We are not uh, either called or qualified to be the judges of someone else's servants. Are you hearing me? Let's take care of our hearts first. Let's take care of our homes first. Let's be the body of Christ as we ought to be right here, just in this small community. Let's try to be the real thing. And then maybe we might have a little moral authority to preach to somebody else. But until we do that, we don't have that authority. So let's not be like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Looking down on the sinners. Not, not even that. Looking down on the other Christians who aren't doing it our way. The reality is, is that when it comes to forms, many people just choose what they like. And if you ask them why, they couldn't probably even tell you. I don't know why I like stained glass. I don't know why I like chanting in church. I don't know why, on the other hand, some people say, I can't stand any of that. And it's not conviction. It's not some profound theological principle. The reality is that's what you like. And that's okay. Because in the body of Christ, there's a profound diversity. God is looking at the heart. And he's looking at our hearts. A quote from uh, Alexander McLaren, and we'll close. He says that Jesus is teaching us a principle here in this passage, and it's this. That all outward forms of religion appointed by man ought only to be observed when they correspond to the feeling and disposition of the worshiper. Now, I don't like the word feeling because I think it's confusing. But I know what he's saying. 
He says that principle cuts up all religious formalism by the very roots. Now, since we're low church, we, we tend to think, well, we can't be formalists, but that's not true. A formalist is somebody who simply adheres to his form and his ritual and thinks it's better than everybody else's. The Pharisee said, fasting is a good thing in itself and meritorious on the side of God. The modern Pharisee says the same about many externals of ritual and worship. Jesus Christ says no. The thing has no value except as an expression of the feeling of the doer. I would say as an expression of the reality of the doer. Our Lord did not object to fasting. He expressly approved of it as a means of spiritual power. But he did object to the formal use of it or any outward form. The formalist form, whether it be the elaborate ritual of the Catholic Church, or the barest nonconformist service, or the silence of a Quaker meeting house, is rigid, unbending, and cold like an iron rod. The true Christian form is elastic, like the stem of a palm tree, which curves and sways and yields to the wind, and has the sap of life in it. If any man be sad, let him feast. Excuse me, let him fast. If any man be merry, let him sing psalms. Let this, let his ritual correspond to his spiritual emotion and conviction. In other words, let there be integrity in it. Let it be real. That's what Jesus was addressing. The heart, as always. Amen? Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you that you have... um, Come to do away with works of any kind. That you come to do away with human merit. I pray, Lord, that as a people who claim to be saved by grace, I pray that we would be a people of grace. That we would be a gracious people. Gracious toward one another. Gracious toward those who may Worship in a different way. Gracious toward the sinner. Remind us, Lord, regularly that our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. That all that we have, we have received as a gift from you. And there is no grounds for boasting. None. And I thank you for that. Because it is liberty. It is freedom. My salvation rests not upon me, but Lord, upon you. I pray, Lord, for any here who may not know you. I pray, Lord, that they might understand that your call, just like you called Levi, you're calling them, you're inviting them to come to to know you. And this invitation is free. And no matter what they've done or where they've been, Lord, that you, you are inviting them and that you will forgive everything. You'll give them a new beginning because it's a gracious invitation. And Lord, may we, your people, daily respond to that invitation. We thank you, Lord, that we live in the age of the fullness of your spirit. May we walk in his fullness. Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. We pray in your name. Amen.